I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss. We're speaking with Dr. Lynn Cohan, an anesthesiologist who's with the Division of Pain Management at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. She was the lead author in a article, Buprenorphine in the Perioperative Period, in the journal Regional Anesthesia Pain Medicine. Good evening, Lynn Cohan. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with just a couple of definitions. The word perioperative and the word M-O-U-D. Perioperative really refers to the time period around someone's surgery. So it could include a little bit of the time prior to the surgery, during the surgery where they're admitted to the hospital and recovering acutely from their surgery, and then up to a short period of time after the surgery. And then MOUD, Medication for Opioid Use Disorder. That's good to know because there's just so many of these acronyms that keep coming at us. What motivated you to put together this analysis? How common is it that a patient comes in for surgery on MOUD or comes in with a perceived need for MOUD? The numbers for specifically opioid use disorder are harder to find. But for substance use disorder, it's estimated that potentially 10 to 15% of patients can be presenting with this. But often, up to 40% of patients might not already be in treatment. You also kind of correctly define the two different groups, patients who are already in recovery and who are on MOUD, and then patients who are not in recovery and are not being actively treated. It brings up so many interesting clinical issues. Obviously, if someone comes in for elective surgery, it's different than emergency surgery. And obviously, people who are on MAT or MOUD have to be treated. Is there a sense that if they're on Suboxone, is there a protocol? How do you assess how much of the opioid using need will or will not interfere with your ability to provide appropriate anesthesia and pain management? Is there a protocol per se? You bring up the point about the elective versus urgent surgeries. And so previous literature really did suggest potentially different protocols based on the urgency for surgery. And so prior protocols, if it was elective, had called for potential tapering or weaning off the buprenorphine versus if it was urgent. Based on newer findings that buprenorphine can in and itself provide analgesia, being on buprenorphine does not necessarily preclude using different multimodal analgesia or other opioids that paradigm is changing. And that's why in our paper, we really suggested one protocol, that it doesn't matter if it's elective, semi-urgent, or urgent. The risk of taking patients off their buprenorphine far outweighs the ability to provide adequate analgesia. So why was there any doubt to begin with? It's hard to say. I think there wasn't enough understanding potentially of some of the receptor binding. Perhaps some of the fear wasn't understood what happens when people were taken off and with the opiate crisis escalating and more patients being on these medications. The findings are clear. Studies that look at some receptor binding patients that are on buprenorphine and even at some of the higher doses, there's some degree of receptors that are still available for other opiates to bind. I also think there was lack of understanding how good of an analgesic buprenorphine can be 30 times potentially more potent than morphine. More studies that have been done that are suggesting that buprenorphine can be an effective analgesic. There was a study that was looking at buprenorphine and methadone compared patients who were continued on either of those drugs versus patients who were discontinued and they had the same pain scores. But then they found that the patients who were discontinued actually required much larger amounts of IV analgesics than the patients who actually stayed on it. 
There was not inadequate pain control in the patients who were maintained. Some of these studies are kind of shifting the paradigm to better understanding that patients really can stay on the buprenorphine. How comfortable are the anesthesiologists and the anesthesiology community in accepting this concept? I think it varies, and I think that's why we really wanted to do this paper. And we did this paper with other societies. An American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, we got on board the largest anesthesia society, American Society of Anesthesia, as well as American Academy of Pain Medicine. And then also the Addiction Society, as well as the Hospital Society. So really wanting to send a strong message and really provide education that you can provide adequate analgesia. It's not something to be afraid. We also really are hoping that there can be a paradigm shift by the time the anesthesiologist sees this patient. They've already kind of been weaned off. So trying to get the message out to the community as well. Another study found that patients who are admitted for non-fatal overdose, when they're discharged, within that first month of discharge, they're at the highest risk of overdose. So we just really felt that this was a really reachable moment for anesthesiologists to get involved in this fight we could do something that we can make a difference. One of the notions in the paper was that you can start this medication. It can be initiated in untreated patients with opioid use disorder in the perioperative setting. So if you can start it in an untreated opioid use patient, do you then stop it when they're discharged from the surgical team? How is it carried through? If you start somebody and they say, wow, I feel better. What has been, if there are any mechanisms to continue it, an automatic transfer to a drug rehabilitation center or pain management or something like that? What's your experience along those lines? We definitely recommended it if at all possible try to have that warm handoff. That depends on your hospital system and how much they can help with that. Having social work or, or services available that can help with that will make that, that transition easier. If those services are not available, SAMHSA has buprenorphine prescriber locator that you can possibly use. But in the end, we felt that the worst case scenario that there was not someone to hand off to, that at least providing short course of buprenorphine treatment was better than no treatment at all. Sending someone with an opioid disorder home with an analgesic to help with their pain, it would be better for that to be buprenorphine. When we wrote the paper, there was a lot going on with the X waiver certification. You know, it's different when you're driving buprenorphine in the hospital setting versus providing a prescription. Clinicians can provide in the hospital without an X waiver. Some of that has changed now with the notice of intent. You no longer need to have proof of training or certification. We often hear, and it's troubling, so many people say, I did not have an opioid use problem until I had dental work until I had surgery or whatever, and they gave me some Percocet, they just de-escalated into problematic use. In your experience, do you have any statistics, any follow-up? You might not, I don't know. Have you seen that sort of thing happening? And does using Suboxone minimize that at all? There's a lot of research that suggests yes, post-procedural or post-op can place patients at risk for continued opioid use. There was a more recent study that cast a little bit of doubt on the previous studies, but certainly I think you can't really develop an opioid use disorder if you have not been exposed to opioids. There's a genetic predisposition as well as like limiting opioids can help to decrease those risks. If you suspect someone has a disorder, you know, buprenorphine could be a good choice. People can still abuse buprenorphine, and buprenorphine certainly has street value as well. A lot of people use it in between their ability to get their drug of choice. What about women who need cesarean sections? 
as you get to the baby. Our paper did not specifically look at that patient population, but again, I think the risk to the baby, a mother that's actively using, is probably greater than the risk starting with the mother on buprenorphine. Your paper, basically, there's two main takeaways, that optimal anesthesia can be obtained in patients without taking them off their MOUD. This is a point of care in the perioperative period. It's an opportunity to recommend and initiate the MOUD in patients with suspected OUD. With that in mind, who would you say is indicated who is contraindicated for each of those components? I mean, I'm sure anyone would have to be contraindicated for not continuing could have a conversation with the buprenorphine prescriber to decrease that somewhat. Now, that being said, most patients with opioid use disorder, if they're truly using it for opioid use disorder, cravings can be adequately treated. So there's probably no contraindications to continuing. In terms of initiating it, the algorithm in our paper, certainly you would have to change that paradigm. For this second aspect, the initiation of the MOUD, do you advocate instituting a screening process? for patients coming in for surgery? We actually did using extensive screening tools. There are shorter ones that certainly can be used. Not everyone might be ready to go on buprenorphine, but still having that conversation, at least they're hearing it, even if they're not willing to try. Who would initiate that conversation? Would it be the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, some uh, social workers in a hospital? We would advocate that any clinician can take this on. One of the things that I found very fascinating, and I thank you for it because it was a bit confusing, but it was a good review of mu agonist, partial agonist, antagonist, and its interaction with so many and the other medications. And as I was reading it, it was delightful to read it, but it, it can be very confusing. So this is not just a casual mixing of medications, anesthesia, surgery, pain management, psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And do you find that people by and large understand the complexities of mixing this medication? You're shaking your head. No. <laughs> if not adequately doing this, then might we inadvertently be doing potentially more harm than not if it's not being done by people who have been properly educated in mixing these medications? And that's why we're advocating for education. We wanted to take the opportunity to educate people so they have some understanding of people and its pharmacology and the proper way to use it. What's the take-home message? What do they need to know about this? The take-home message is that the opioid crisis is alarming and it's killing people and that all clinicians see patients with opioid use disorder and we all have a stake in the game. If you have patients on buprenorphine and they're going for surgery, please don't discontinue them. You know, if you see someone you suspect has an opioid use disorder, think about getting an OI or you know, getting X-wavered. There's certainly training. You can do it online. You can educate yourself. It does not mean you have to be an addictionologist. I am not an addictionologist. A lot of the members of the committee were not addictionologists. What I found very enlightening is that the recommendation that the medicine not be immediately stopped when someone's coming in for surgery. A lot of people with opioid disorders, all sorts of substance disorders, but we're talking about opioid right now, if they've reached a level of balance in their life, we don't want to disrupt it. And what you're writing here is that we should respect that and not infuse shame, embarrassment, fear into the fact that someone has a tumor that needs to be removed. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Opioid use disorder is not a personal failing. It's a disease. And people who are in recovery, most of them really want to stay in recovery. You know, they don't want to take risks that are 
the fear of relapse, taking away their buprenorphine and exposing them to opioids or drugs that they might have sort of choice in the past. So they fear that. And so you're placing them in a vulnerable situation that they really don't want. I have seen patients who needed emergency surgery They'd go in and they're basically good doctors. They just have no sense of how to manage these cases. And they stopped. And then they were discharged and it was complicated. And they would end up in the world of psychiatry. And it was just a mess. And I read in your article that, here, I'll read it. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that over 81,000 drug overdose deaths occurred in the 12 months preceding 2020. That's huge. Yeah. And that's even gone up since this has been published. The latest data is over like, I think it's like 93,000, the highest reported in any single year on record. I'm delighted to see that anesthesiologists are looking at this problem. It doesn't segregate us. How are your colleagues, not the ones necessarily who are working with you, because that's a closed group, but in general, the world of anesthesiology, the world of surgery, do they embrace this notion? Are you getting good feedback? Are you getting skepticism? What, what, what are you getting from it? Good feedback. We've presented this now at some meetings already. The American Society of Anesthesia meeting was just two weeks ago. People are definitely receptive. I think there's questions, but I think they want to know more. And I think they're happy to have some type of guidance. You mentioned one of the biggest barriers is finding providers, accessibility to finding providers. What other barriers do you find that patients often have to deal with? There are, unfortunately, and this is insurance barriers. There is some resistance sometimes from patients from being ready to start the treatment. I mean, in terms of the prescribers' lack of education, I mean, a lot of people just don't know enough about it. And traditionally, there has been a certain amount of resistance in the recovery community to putting a patient on buprenorphine. How, how do you deal with that? How do you strike a balance that's palatable for all involved? I think the data there speaks for itself. I mean, patients in MOUD, I think it's been a validated therapy in trying to just provide that education is important. And you need to include, I would assume, options, a variety of approaches. You're not going to tell them this is what you have to do, but we can suggest all all different combinations of things. Methadone obviously is cheaper than buprenorphine, and we did not want to imply in our paper that we're sort of choosing one versus the other. It's just the paper was specifically dealing with buprenorphine, but we would really advocate for MOUD in general. What's so fascinating is that you look at the other dimensions of a person's life. You're sending a message to the community that if you get sick, you can come to the hospital. We're not going to make you worse. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want people to be afraid to seek seek treatment and civilization because they're afraid, you know, what will happen to them when they come to the hospital. And it's obviously really important to recognize, you know, that anxiety related to illness, acute pain, those, those are all risk factors for relapse. Lessen people's fears of those things can be helpful. I hope that you can bring some of the pain management and the substance abuse groups, I say this symbolically or metaphorically, but into the operating suite with you to see how you deal with this so that there's an education that occurs so that they can talk to patients and in turn reduce some of the apprehension. I have seen people afraid to go into surgery because they're going to mess with my medicine. Mm -hmm.
in that fear. People don't have to be afraid that they can continue their treatment. And that at the same time, they don't need to be afraid of having sensor control pain, ketamine infusions, body pain infusions, all these different types of things. Obviously, it's important that we impart this knowledge to the entire medical community. With all of this in mind and seeing the direction that the opioid crisis is going, how optimistic are you that, that the future is going to be brighter? The COVID pandemic is still going on. People are still socially isolated. Financial hardships are occurring because of this. It's going to be an uphill battle, but I still think we could each do our part to really make a difference. It doesn't have to always be this way. We as individuals and then collectively really make a difference. Dr. Lynn Cohen, thank you so much for this most informative discussion. I think this is going to be very, very useful for our doctors. I agree. Thank you so much.